Good morning. It's a joy to worship our God, sing these wonderful songs from the heart, and hear God's people pray. You know, we, we studied uh, some time ago in the Sermon on the Mount, and I've said this before, how when uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ pray that we are hoping, and for ourselves and others, that when we pray, we, we pray vertically, that we're praying to God and not, not performing a prayer uh, for those in our midst. But what a blessing it is to hear our brothers and sisters pray. So while, while on the one hand, no one should pray uh, so as to be heard by people, to be seen by men, praised by men, on the other hand, uh, it is greatly edifying to hear one another pray. So in every aspect of our time together today, whether it's singing or listening to God's word preached or hearing those who will pray, we're worshiping our God together. We're being built up in our most holy faith. So the prayer this morning is that we leave here after this service more fortified in the Lord Jesus Christ than we were when we came more fortified against the enemy, whom we've just recently uh, seen as we've been going through Genesis. So we are in Genesis chapter 3. If you'll go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 3. We continue to work our way through the book of Genesis. This is a series that we're currently in. And we find ourselves here in Genesis Three. And last week we began looking at this very important historical event, and I emphasize historical, not a symbol of every man's struggle, although it is every man's struggle, uh, but in fact a historical event that just as Christ came historically, literally in space and time and, and obeyed the Father as the second Adam, so too was the first Adam a real historical event. Figure And so too was this event known as the fall, the temptation of Eve and the subsequent sin of Adam and Eve, which brought about the fall of the human race. The early church father, John Chrysostom, ended his first sermon on the fall with these words. And you almost can hear his, uh, he's realizing how how much of a horrible picture he has painted as he's gone through his sermon. So I wonder, I wonder to what extent he even planned to say this. But he gets to the end of his first sermon on the fall, <clears throat> and he says this, But in case we make this sermon completely melancholy, it's pretty melancholy if you read through it, by going on and on about this sin that consisted of eating of the tree and of the disobedience overwhelming the human being, Come now, he says, if you don't mind, let us change the topic from the tree to that other tree, to that other tree, from this tree to the tree of the cross. At the cross, we have a very different tree. And his words here reminds us, remind us of the fact that there are really two great trees in human history. At the first tree, there was disobedience. There was unrighteousness. There was the entrance into the world of death in the first tree or at this first tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But at the second tree, there was obedience and life. In fact, we might would say the most horrible thing that ever happened on earth really happened at the second tree, right? As Christ was murdered, as God himself was, was killed, his prophets had been killed. Those who proclaimed his word, those who spoke in his place. But now, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, and his son was murdered. So in, in one sense, the cross really represents death. It is death, the greatest death, the most wicked murder of human history. Yet the cross is life to those who trust in its power, to those who look to it for salvation. And so I wonder about us this morning. We've all come to the first tree 
You've been to the first tree. You were born at the first tree. Every single one of us was, and every single one of us even today eats at that tree. But I think the question we all have to ask ourselves is, have we come to the second tree? The question for each of us that we have to ask this morning, I don't assume, and we should not presume, is have I, have I tasted from the second tree, the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I tasted the life which he gives through his death on the cross? Has the cross become a reality for you? And I don't mean just Christian religion. I don't mean just kind of a nice feelings about God. I don't mean that. I don't mean introspection and conscientiousness about your morality or your feelings. I mean the cross. Christ crucified for sinners to cover shame and guilt and sin and death forever. Has that become a reality for you? 1 Corinthians 15, 22 The Apostle Paul says, for as in Adam, all die. We're all in Adam. We're all dying physically, and we're all born spiritually separated from God on account of what happened in the garden and on account of our own sin, which follows from that. For as in Adam, all die. But then he says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're in Christ this morning, if you are in Christ this morning, you will live. Forever. And in fact, the Bible tells us that we already live, you know, in, some sen- in one sense, we are already experiencing eternal life. Eternal life, Jesus says in John 17, is to know God, to know him in personal relationship, in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So if we are in Christ, we are already experiencing eternal life. And so we'll pass from this life, embodied life, into a disembodied existence, and then our bodies will be raised one day. But we will live on forever. There will never be an end, if we're in Christ, never be an end to our life because life is to know God. And if we have him, we will know him forever. So think on this tree. Think on the tree of the cross. The title for the sermon this morning is The Deadly Deed, and we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, verses 6 to 8. Last week, we looked at the deadly dialogue, and that was verses 1 to 5, the conversation between Satan and Eve concerning God's command not to eat of one particular tree in the garden. And what we looked at last week was the fact that this dialogue between Satan and Eve centers on God's word. That's really the issue at stake at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, which tells us all that for our society and for us individually and for our homes and the churches, that God's word really is the center of reality for us. That sin and all that it entails really centers on, and temptation centers on adherence to the word of God. But we see in these opening verses of Genesis 3, we see a number of things that happen to God's word in the course of that dialogue. So we see that we see God's word twisted by the serpent, questioning God's goodness by simply perverting what it is God had said. God said, you can eat of every tree except one. So what does Satan say? Did God really say, you can't eat of any tree? Sowing a seed of doubt in the mind of Eve regarding God's goodness. And then we see Eve's response as she responds to the serpent, as she responds to Satan, and we see God's word altered, that she tweaks God's word a little bit. On on the surface, it appears that what Eve says to the serpent is in fact a faithful rendition of the command that God had given. But it's not. We see there that she takes out the word, surely you may eat, of every. She takes out surely and every shrinking God's provision, and then she adds, and we can't touch it, which God had never said. The provision and permission gets small in Eve's mind, and the prohibition gets very large in Eve's mind, giving over to the notion that God is not good. He is not one who lavishes his people with good things, but rather he's like a cruel tyrant, a mean-spirited 
deity who just stands over us and prohibits us in this way. So we see God's word twisted, God's word altered. Then we see the serpent contradicting God's word, God's word contradicted. You will not surely die. God is a liar, Satan says. And then we see God's word maligned. He goes even further, subtly twisting and perverting God's word and then saying, no, 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 God's word is just not true. And then going to say that not only is God's word not true, but God's heart is filled with jealousy, mean-spiritedness towards you. So what is the net effect of the dialogue that we saw last week? Those first five verses of Genesis 3 preceding the fall. What is the net effect of this conversation between Satan and Eve? Well, God's word is left questionable, confusing, and untruthful. That's the conclusion that Eve is drawn to. It's questionable, it's confusing, and it's untruthful. God is portrayed as a liar who doesn't punish disobedience and who, out of jealousy, is holding humans back from their full potential. Isn't that incredible? Just that, those short number of verses, just those two questions or statements of the serpent yield all of that power in the soul of Eve. That's what we're left with. When we come to verse 6 of Genesis 3, and I like what Kent Hughes says on this point. He says, when we doubt both God's word and his goodness, the ground is coming up fast. So let me ask you this. In what ways are you doubting God's word? In what ways do you doubt God's goodness? Do you think God loves you? Do you think he's good to you if you're a Christian? Or are, you, are you really believing that God, in fact, is disposed towards you with sympathy and love? That this is, the, this is the way in which he sees you as a son, as a daughter? Do you trust that he is good even in suffering? You know, some of us are going through some difficult stuff right now. Some of us, even here this morning, going through some very difficult times. And for some of us, there's, it's not even been known. It hasn't even been told to anyone. You just kind of keep that to yourself. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your health. Some tests you got back recently. No one knows. Maybe not even your spouse knows what's going on inside of your heart. And maybe you're tempted, just like Eve was, to doubt that God is good, that he cares that he is kind. This is how Satan is always working. So we read in 2 Corinthians eleven three 3 from the Apostle Paul. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So what is Satan about what is this serpent? We see him here in the garden with Eve, and that seems like such a distant thing to us. Seems like such a distant thing to our modern-day life. But what is this serpent doing? What is Satan doing? And I think, above all, what he wants to do is he wants to detach you from Christ. He wants you as a Christian to see Christ as small, he wants you as a Christian to cling to things other than Christ, a little clinging to Christ, because the fact is, as a Christian, we by nature cling to Christ. But what he wants us to do, what Satan wants each of us to do with his cunning, with his craftiness, with his deceit, his temptation, is he wants us to cling a little less to Christ, cling a little more to other things that yield a little bit of happiness for the moment, that cannot sustain us. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But Satan reverses that. He inverts that. He says, no, no, that's not the case. This is solid. Feel it. Feel it. It's solid. You can stand right here. This will be good for you. He's working in all of us like that, even now, even today. This is solid ground. Stand here. And Christ all the while says, no, only on me do you have a solid foundation. So this morning, as we come to verses 6 to 8, we're looking at the deed that followed 
the dialogue, the deadly deed. So go ahead and stand with me, if you will. We're going to read God's word. Just going to read these three verses. Genesis 3, verses 6 to 8. So we have the temptation, as I just described, and then verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Saddest words in all of the Bible. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we dig into the scriptures and as we... Asked him to apply these words to our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for telling us where we come from. Our world gives us many other narratives, many other histories, alternative accounts of where we come from. Alternative explanations for who we are and what our purpose ought to be. And Father, how refreshing and challenging and settling and stabilizing it is to see the truth of it all here at the very beginning of your word, the Bible. Father, we're so grateful that you have made known to us all of reality in the scriptures that you have given us in your word truth about where we come from and clear explanations for why we see the things in the world that we see, why we see when we look in the mirror the things in our own hearts, the anger, the greed, the lust, and all other sorts of pride and envy and sin that we see in our own hearts even today, even this weekend, Father, which tell us where we come from and who we are and the predicament in which we find ourselves. Father, we're grateful that you make all these things clear to us and you give us the remedy in the body and blood of your own Son. Father, we pray this morning that we would cling to Christ as we consider the fallenness of human beings, as we consider death that reigns over those in Adam, that we would tremble, Father, before the reality of it all, that we would not be presumptuous and cavalier and casual and trivial about such weighty divine things, but that we would take this seriously and understand that death reigns supreme in this fallen world. Father, but what a glorious truth it is that our champion Christ the King reigns at your right hand. And even now, he intercedes for us. And even now, he is with us. Christ, be here. Give us strength. Help us see you. Help us obey you. Help us follow you as you said to Peter on that beach, follow me. You, Peter, follow me. God, would each of us hear those words today in a new way? And would we leave here following you, Jesus? Trusting you and not ourselves and not this sinking sand that we have in this world. Help us, Lord Jesus, we ask in your precious name, for your sake. Amen. So, as we consider this deadly deed, we're going to focus on three things this morning. Three things. And basically, I'll just say what we have here 
in these verses. The reason I selected these verses, verses 6 to 8, as a unit is because here essentially what we have is the, the act itself followed by the immediate effect. We'll begin to see the consequences of that worked out as we go through Genesis 3. But essentially, the act itself, what happens in the fall and the immediate effect of it really cannot be separated. They, they go together. And so we have the deadly deed and its effect, essentially, is what we're looking at here. So three things that we need to consider as we look at verses 6 to 8. First, the independent assessment. Secondly, the disobedient act. And then thirdly, the shameful awareness. So we're going to spend our time looking at those three things this morning. So let's look first at the independent assessment. Look at the first part of verse 6. The first part of verse 6. So when the woman saw, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And let's just stop there for a moment, camp out on this portion of verse 6. So what is happening in this moment? What are, we, what are we looking at here as we look at just this first part of verse 6? I think what we have here is an intersection of three major themes that get picked up in the New Testament. So uh, imagine this as being a, a point, and you have three roads kind of coming into it. And here's what we have. First, we have this great truth of the New Testament that sin is a matter of the heart. It is not a mere act. So we are to understand this as the origin of Eve's sin. This is very, very, very important because you could come, uh, the, the author Moses could have left this out. He could have said, okay, well, there's the temptation. She took it and she ate it. That's not what we're told. We're given all of this language here telling us what is going on where in Eve's heart. That's what we have. Sin is a matter of the heart. It is not a mere act. And this is one of the biggest ideas that we had in the Sermon on the Mount which we did before Genesis as we looked at those words of Jesus. Even there towards the very beginning in chapter 5, we get these words from Jesus in verse 28. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 28. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he essentially says the same thing about murder saying that a person who uh, hates his brother, who hates someone or speaks ill of someone, in his or her heart, it's as though he or she has murdered that person and will be liable, Jesus says, to judgment. So Jesus wants to make clear, especially to the scribes and Pharisees who want to make sure that they dot all of the I's and cross all of the T's in terms of behavior, in terms of actions that are, by the way, seen by others, for their own boosting of the ego, Jesus wants to drive the matter to the heart. This is a key truth throughout the New Testament. And so the, the idea is this, that there is much going on inside before anything happens on the outside. And we need to pause on that for a moment. Think about that. In your own life, there is much going on on the inside before anything happens on the outside. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is going on on the inside now that I might be ignoring? I don't see it. I don't see boots on the ground. I don't see the rubber meeting the road. I don't see things actually happening. So I'm okay. I'm good. I'm doing all right. I've got this list in my brain. I've got my own standard. And I'm kind of checking things off and making sure, well, I haven't done this against this person. I haven't cheated on my wife or my husband. I haven't done this particular thing against this person. And all the while, what's going on in the heart? That is what I think we are meant to ask ourselves as we consider this first part of verse 6 and what is going on with Eve. So that's the first road that comes into this point. There's a second road, and that is 
that it is not the devil who brings us to sin, but our own desires. And by the way, it's not God who tempts us. So we can't be frustrated with God. If, you, if you're continuing to sin, falling into sin, and you're finding yourself going, God, why do you keep putting me in this circumstance? Why do you keep putting me in this situation? Why won't you relieve me of this? That too is sin. That is blasphemous. God does not lead you to sin. God does not tempt us. We sin because of our own desires. Notice that the dialogue is over. This is very interesting. The dialogue between Satan and Eve is done. The the serpent, for our purposes as we look at this, is gone. He's no longer present. It's like he just recedes from the scene. And we're only left with this massive spotlight on Eve and even more on Eve's desires. That's what we see when we come to verse 6. And in fact, the serpent doesn't appear again until God judges him. But we don't have him in the scene at this point. And this is as James 1, verses 14 to 15 says. We read this earlier. I'll read it again. James 1, 14 to 15. It says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You know what that means? Satan doesn't give you desires. He works in your desires. He loves your lust of the flesh. He loves your desires. That's the theater in which he works. But at the end of the day, it is our desires themselves that lure us and entice us and give rise to sin. James goes on and says this, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I can't help but to think that James has in mind Genesis chapter 3. Because that is exactly what we see here in this verse with Eve. Also, remember that she says here that the, she, she sees here that the tree is to be desired to make one wise. It's interesting that this is the same verb, desired. It is to be desired. It's the same verb that is used in the Ten Commandments when God says, and you shall not covet. What that tells us is that what we have here is kind of a form of covetousness. You imagine a person who is kind of walking among his or her peers and thinking, I wish I had that person's blank, whatever it might be. I want that person's wife or husband. I wish I had that person's house. Man, it sure would be nice in those days to have that person's ox. (laughs) That would have been kind of what, what they would maybe think. And actually it says that. Or maybe I want their car. We maybe don't, don't even say it. We don't even, we don't even give, give words to it. Maybe we don't even consciously give words to it in our minds, but it's just down here deep in our hearts. We, we want things that we cannot have because they belong, belong to someone else. But go back a step. We want things that we cannot have. That's the real issue here. And we see this with Eve. There was no need for her. We need to understand that. Eve had no need of this tree. How do we know that? Well, we're told in chapter 2, verse 9, that all the trees of the garden, every single tree in that garden was beautiful. In fact, there's nothing in the text to indicate that that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was any more beautiful than any of the other trees. In fact, there were probably trees more beautiful than that one. We're also told that all of the trees were good for food. Every single one of them, good for food, beautiful in, a, in appearance. We're told that in Genesis 2.9. And we're also told, we also are told by her being made in the image of God, that Eve was already like God. Do, do you see Satan's devices? The tree The trees are already giving her food, uh, tasty food, and they're already beautiful to her sight. She's already like God, and she already has wisdom. 
We see the wisdom of Adam, for example, which Eve would have had as well. We see the wisdom of Adam as he's naming the animals in chapter 2. So she already has all of these things. What is going on here? Not need. Pure desire of what was not hers. She wanted what God had forbidden, period. God's forbidden tree had become for her the object of all of her longing and all of her passion. That's what she wanted. Forget the other trees. I want that one. And it's the same in our lives. What has God given you? What has God given us? So much. So much. And we want other things. Sometimes we want things that we should not have. And when the forbidden thing becomes beautiful and great, everything else that God has given us gets really small and it just disappears. We don't see it. We don't see the good things God has given us because the one thing that he says no to, we lust after, we want. So that's the second road that we see coming in here is the desire of the heart. A third road, as we see this intersection that we have here, a third road is that our desires can be placed into one of three categories. So we're told in the New Testament that sin is a matter of the heart. We're told that it has to do with our desires. It's not the devil who makes us sin. And we're also told that our desires can really be categorized into three different categories. 1 John 2.16 says it this way. For all that is in the world, this is comprehensive language, all that is in the world, and then listen to what he lists. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. If you memorize this, say in the King James Version, the New King James Version, you'd have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says all of this that's in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. John's description here mirrors what we find here with Eve. She is enticed physically, aesthetically, and intellectually. This is amazing. This is every part of her being is being pulled and lured into this sin against God. She is lured by how the fruit will satisfy her physically. She is lured by how it excites her emotionally. Her imagination runs wild. The beauty of it all just captures her. And she's excited about it in that way. And how it will exalt her intellectually. You've seen this, right? You've seen this in your own heart. You've seen this in your own life. The truth is that at every point of temptation that we face... We understand it falling into one of these three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So now we have, I think, a better idea of what's going on here with Eve. But I want us to get to the heart of the matter. What is really going on here? What's the real problem with Eve at this point? It's one answer. It's one word. Autonomy. Autonomy, independence, and that's why I say up here the independent assessment. See, before this point, this is amazing when you notice this in the text, before this point, the only person whom we have declaring what is good is God. Remember in the first chapter, God saw, he saw, and it was good. He saw everything. We get the same language here with Eve. Notice that, that God saw everything he had made. It was good. He saw what he had made. It was good. And then at the end, in verse 31 of chapter 1, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then what do we get at the beginning of chapter 2? What does God say regarding Adam? It is not good for the man to be alone. So up to this point, we have but one voice when it comes, hear this, when it comes to assessing what is good, what is not. What is good, what is bad, what is right and wrong, what is true, what is false. We have one voice on that question. It's God's. He's the one who assesses reality because he made it. He is reality. And all that he made participates in his reality. He's the one assessor. He says, 
what is good. But what do we have here in this scene in verse 6, just the first part of this verse? Eve is determining for herself. Do you see that? Eve is determining for herself what is good. This is at the heart of all sin. She is independent at this point of her maker. No longer relying on God to tell her what is right and doing in accordance with that because he's God, he's the king, he's the creator, he's the giver of all that she has, her very breath. He built her. No, she's gonna do it her her own way. She's gonna figure it out. She's gonna reason it all out. As long as she's got it logically connected just right, it's good. As long as it just feels right, fill in the blank. Whether it's the professor who's reasoned it all out in his own strength, in his own self, or it's the person who decides that he or she is going to, say, commit adultery. The feelings have all sorted themselves out. It just feels right. It just seems right. It all adds up. Independence, autonomy from God, whether it's in the mind or in the emotions or in the will, it is self-guided. We either live by God's word or by our own assessment of reality. You know what that means? If you don't know God's word, you live by your own reality. You can't live by something you don't know. Reading the Bible is not just something you do as a Christian. It's not just a, a legalistic requirement strapped on you, as though when you move over into the Christian camp, now what we have to do is read this book. Because if we don't read this book, then we're not doing what the the club requires. This club requires that we read this book. This is kind of the the, the core book. That's not it at all. This book is God's holy word. It gives us his will. It gives us his intentions and his plan. We want to know him and know his will that we might do it. And so if we don't read the Bible, it's not a matter of not checking that particular box. It's a matter of living according to our own ways. It's a matter of trusting in our own heart, trusting in our own decision-making. And in fact, it's pride because we seem to think, you know what? I really have it figured out. I can figure it out without the Bible. I don't need the scriptures, really. And when I do get the scriptures, it's just this nice little devotional that I put on top in the morning, makes me feel real nice and lovely, and then I go out and I feel a little better during the day. That's rubbish Christianity. That's not the Christianity of the Bible, the Bible gives us a much more robust need to be filled with the riches of Christ's word that we might serve him and obey him and trust him in every area of life. So we either live by God's word or by our own assessment of reality. We either worship God or we worship ourselves. You know, there's been some debate among theologians as to what's the heart of the fall, Augustine, early church father, said that at the foundation of all sin and at the foundation of the fall is pride. So we see Satan fell through pride. And we see the fall here in the garden that it's pride. And then Calvin comes along a little over a thousand years later and says, well, no, no, it's, it's, it, pride, yes, is, is at work. Ambition is at work. But the real problem is unbelief. Unbelief. Just as we cling to God and we are close to God by faith, by belief, we are distant from God by unbelief, by, by disbelieving in him. And I think both of those, you know, it's the, it's the mark of theologians to have to find one answer. You know, you got to reduce it to one answer. It cannot be both pride and unbelief. I mean, it has to be pride or unbelief. And so you write books on whether it is pride or unbelief, lengthy books on whether it is actually pride or unbelief. And I think we could, we could throw in the mix to both of these, pride and unbelief, we could throw in the mix idolatry. Because ultimately, that's what Eve is doing. By making, you have to see this, by making her own assessment of reality, she is saying, I replace God's word. My ability to assess reality can be independent of God. Therefore, I am God. I determine what is good and bad, right and wrong. That is the problem with our world. That's the problem with our own hearts is that we're idolaters. 
We say what's good and what's not. And all the while, God says, no, you are a creature, not the creator. And you will be judged one day for your rebellion. A few years ago, I lived in Paris for about a month. And one of the sites there that you can go to, a group of us went to, was uh, the grave of Jim Morrison. Uh, some of you may know who he is, some, some maybe not. He was the, the lead singer of The Doors. And uh, it's interesting, I remember seeing on his gravestone this inscription. You may have been there, you may have read about this or seen this. According to his own demon or daimon. And basically it means spirit. It's in Greek according to his own spirit. He lived according to what he thought he ought to do. Lived according to his own spirit, his own heart, lived that way, died that way, and that is the lot of every single human being who does not obey this book, who does not live in accordance with what God has spoken. So are you making your own way this morning? To a certain degree, we all are. We all have, and that's why we need a Savior. See, anyone here this morning would have to say to that question, yeah, I make my own way every day. And before Christ saved me, I've been making my own way. And what all of that tells us is that we can't get back on our own. We can't, we can't go back behind the fall and be right with God again on our own. What we need is a Savior what you need is a savior. Christ gives us freedom from our sin. Freedom from disobedience. Forgiveness for all the ways that we have rebelled against God. And there's not a single non-rebel in this room right now. Not a single one of us is out from under the searching gaze of the almighty God. He sees all of us, every nook and cranny of our hearts, every sin. And he tells us in his word, I have given a savior. Trust in him. Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest you be destroyed. Eve wanted wisdom, but as we are told in Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of knowing anything. In fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Where do we start? We don't start. And this, I think, has apologetic implications. There are some apologists who start with reason. And then there are some apologists out there who start with the bedrock truth of God's word. It's a presupposition. That's where we start. We start there. What we're told is that the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And that's exactly why Augustine will say, it is faith-seeking understanding. It's not understanding my way into faith. It's faith-seeking understanding as we humble ourselves before the living God and seek his mercy for our rebellion. That is where we find wisdom and knowledge. All right, so let's look now at the end of verse 6. That's what's going on on the inside. But now we turn to the outside. What happened? What happened that day? Look at the rest of verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was able, I'm sorry, was, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We've looked at what happened on the inside. What happened on the outside? Well, it really cannot be put more simply than this. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. That's, that's it. That's the heart of the matter. In fact, that's the sum of the matter. God had given the first humans one law. Genesis 2, 16 to 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice, in the law, he gives these words. Of provision. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What we have here, as I've said before, is a prohibition that is coded with permission and provision. Do you see that? It's not just as though God made them and said, There you go, you have life. 
you have being. Now do this. If you don't do it, I'm going to get you. That's not what we have here with God. God gives them permission. He says, look, I've given you all this. Take all of this, but don't eat from this one tree. We have commands that are coded with God's love. And you know, God never gives us commands that are not coded with his love. Every epistle of the New Testament, as I've said before, when you get the, God, you get the gospel presented, this, this really in-depth understanding of what God has done for us in Christ, and you begin to get these instructions. You know, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't act as the Gentiles do. Make sure you spend your time wisely. Make sure that you, you know, love one another, forgive one another. Make sure you don't get carried away by your lust. And all of these instructions and commands are always connected, glued together, inextricably linked to the gospel of grace, the gospel of God's love. And that's exactly what we have here. It's exactly what we have in the Ten Commandments. As I've said before, God told them, look, I saved you out of Egyptian slavery. I've given you all these things. Now obey my law. This is the way of God. He coats it with his love. And the Bible tells us straightforwardly that the nature of sin is disobedience to God's law. 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. So I want to ask this question of us as parents. Not everyone in here is a parent. But some of us are. And I think that anytime I can get an opportunity to, to, as the text gives rise to uh, applications for parents, I think it's helpful and important. And this is one of the things that I think is that we should notice here. How often... Do we tell our kids that they need to obey us? Right? We like that as parents. We like to tell them, you need to obey me. That's what you have to do. And in fact, that is what they have to do. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 6 to children that they are to obey. That is God's command to them. We ought to tell them to obey. They must obey their Parents, but how often do we tell our, our, our children that they need to obey, obey and that we turn around and do as we please with regard to God's word and pick whatever it might be. I don't want to be legalistic here and pick individual things, but whatever it might be, think on it. Ways in which we just blatantly disobey God's word. You know, one that I think might be relevant for us to think through since we're here gathered together is when the word of God says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, right? Now, we all go on vacation. We all have to travel and do certain things, right? Absolutely, of course. But how many of us just take a really flippant attitude towards being with God's people? Your kids see that. And they'll grow up to do the same thing. They'll grow up to see your attitude towards the church, your attitude towards God's people. But above all, here's what we're communicating. You're under my authority, but my authority is this independent thing. And what we want to communicate to our children is you're under my authority because I'm under God's authority. You're under God's authority by being under my authority. God is the king. Not me. I'm not just some arbitrary ruler over my kids, making them to conform to my wishes. No. I'm a creature under the authority of God, and so are they, and therefore they must obey his word. One of the things that we see here as we consider this disobedient act is the breakdown of the first human relationship. Why do you have trouble in your marriage? It goes back to here. It goes back to Genesis 3. Why do we have trouble, not just in marriage, but why do we have trouble between humans? Because we can't forget, there's just two humans on the planet at this point. So there's a sense in which any kind of disjuncture between Adam and Eve is, is, is something that's related to merit, the marital relationship. But there's another sense in which Adam and Eve are neighbors. Do you see that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Adam and Eve are neighbors. They're just two human beings. In, in a sense, they are, they, are, they are giving us an early uh, example of, of community in the world, of human community. So what do we see here with the breakdown of this relationship between Adam and Eve? Well, the woman was created to be her husband's what? Helper. That's what it says. A helper fit 
for him. It's not a derogatory term that doesn't come with all the traditionalist baggage of you need to be in the kitchen doing dishes, sweeping the floor, and washing my clothes. It doesn't come with all of that. It, it, it doesn't have all of that baggage. That's something culture puts on it. But what we do find is that the wife is made to be a helper to her husband in all of the ways that they together will evidence God's image in the world. But what do we see here? Is she helping her husband? No, she's harming her husband. She goes to him and she brings the fruit to him. We also see something else about this woman, this this wife Eve. She acts independently of her husband. Her husband presumably was the one who told her not to eat from the tree. The only evidence we have for God giving a command is to Adam before he made Eve. And so here I think God is giving us the the, the structure of the home, essentially that the husband, as Paul very explicitly says in Ephesians 5, is that the husband is to be the, the head of the wife in the sense that he is the head of the home. He's the leader of the home. And what do we see here with Eve? Independently acting. And going against the counsel of her husband. Not helping, acting independently. And what do we see about this man? This pitiful man, as we are too. The man was to be head over his wife. He was to lead her. What does he do? He fails to protect her. It is unclear in what sense Adam is with her. And I've heard people make a a lot of, uh, give, put a lot of emphasis on the fact that the text says that, and she gave to her husband who was with her. But it's really not, it's not conclusive whether he was with her for the temptation, to what extent he was with her, if the text is just simply saying, with her in the garden. And, and so we can't really tell, and we shouldn't speculate, I think, whether or not Adam was there in that moment with Eve as she is being tempted by the serpent. What we can see is a kind of passive indifference from this man. And how often do we see that in our own hearts, in our own lives? This passive indifference. He, there's no discussion here. It's incredible. God breathed into him the breath of life, sculpted him from the dust of the earth, and give, gave him a command. And here so quickly, it says, Eve took it, she ate, and she gave to her husband, and he ate. Period. That's it doesn't elaborate, there's no pushback, there's no, let me sit and think on this for a little while. He just does it. He sins, he rebels, he disobeys God. He is passive and indifferent. And here's another important thing we see about him. He idolizes his wife. He idolizes her by elevating her wishes over God's. How do we know that he idolizes his wife? What will the Lord say to him in just a few verses? Verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. What did Adam do according to God? He listened to her rather than the Lord. He listened to his wife rather than the Lord. And that tells us that Adam has elevated his wife above where she ought to be in his own heart. So here's, I think, a summary we have for ourselves, husbands, men. He either makes too little of her or too much of her. Think about that. He either makes too little of her or too much of her. He idolizes her in listening to her over God's command. He makes too little of her in that he fails to protect her and to lead her as he ought. We do that, husbands. We make too little of our wives or we make too much of them. Or sometimes we, we could say it this way. We make too little of our wives and we make too much of them. Both and at the same time. Let's go to our final point as we finish this morning. And that is the shameful awareness. What is the effect of this eating? Look at verses 7 to 8 as we finish up this morning. Verses 7 to 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What a sad scene we have here. 
This is a dramatic shift away from the previous condition of these first humans. We see this internally, horizontally, and vertically. And I'm gonna go through these quickly. We see this dramatic shift here with Adam and Eve. We see this dramatic shift in these three ways, internally, horizontally, and vertically. So let's look at each of these internally. The actions themselves, just look at the language. The actions themselves create a sense of anxiety, inner turmoil. This is the origin of a troubled soul. Think about it. This is the first troubled soul right here. is squirming around desperately trying to sew together something to cover their nakedness, hiding, cowering among the trees of the garden. This is, this is not a soul at a state of peace or state of calm, equilibrium, whatever you want to call it. This is a soul that is in a state of uproar and turmoil. This is the origin of anxiety and fear and guilt and shame. It goes back here to the garden with this sin. So we see it internally. We see it horizontally. After the first wedding in chapter 2, what did we read? Verse 25 of chapter 2, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now we've already seen something about the wife and the husband and how they're relating to each other horizontally. We've seen the failure on her part to help and submit to her husband. And we've seen on his part the failure to lead and to protect his wife. But now what do we see? It just goes even further. When it was in the heart, that's where we saw, that's what we saw. Now what do we see in the act itself, in the aftermath? They cover themselves from one another. Perfect trust has given way to self-conscious fear. They've moved from closeness and transparency to distance and concealment. We've all felt that. Embarrassment, shame, even in our marriages, goes back to this point. And later, what are we going to see Adam do? He's going to blame his wife. God's going to come to Adam. It just gets worse. He fails to lead her. He fails to protect her. Then we see this, this brokenness between them, this need to conceal. And then what does he do? It's her fault, God. And in fact, God, it's your fault because you gave her to me. That's what he's going to say to the Lord. How awful. What scar that would have left on Eve's heart. And that scar has never left. This is the problem with our marriages. It continues to ripple out. So horizontally, internally, but also we see vertically. When we read in verse 8 that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of fellowship with God that Adam and Eve had enjoyed up to that point. In the cool of the day probably means it's, it's not entirely certain. People disagree over this. Once again, write all sorts of books on it and so forth, uh, articles. But, but the question, it, it seems that it means the evening. In the cool of the day, the evening, as the sun is going down and, and, and the, the Lord God is walking in the garden in their midst. This is the picture that we have of intimacy with God. We know that because throughout Genesis, we're told certain individuals walked with God. So we're told that Noah and Enoch walked with God, that Abraham was to walk before God. And we're told, we're given this language with the temple in the sanctuary around the tabernacle that, that God is walking in the midst of Israel. So this is the language of fellowship and intimacy. But what's happened? Separation, distance, concealment. I'm thankful for Joanna. I think it was Joanna here, our, our, women, our children's ministry director. She gave a really clear uh, display of this to the kids, you know, that we were with God. And then, and the other, the other night, I was doing this quite a bit, and, and Jake said, Daddy, how many times are you going to do that? I just kind of got, I got a little happy doing that. But that's exactly what happened. We are with God in the garden, and it breaks. Now there's separation. Now there's distance. Now there's man hiding from God out of fear. He's afraid of God. Mountains fall on us, people will say one day when God returns in all of his glory. So even before we get deep into the effects of the fall and the working out of the consequences of death, one truth becomes very clear. And I want to end on this note. 
a loss of peace. At the heart of this fall, in the effect of it, the immediate effect of it, what we see is a loss of peace. Peace within, peace between people, peace with God. And that's why the Lord Jesus, when he comes, he tells his disciples this. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And what does Jesus say when he rises from the dead? The first thing he says to his disciples, peace be with you. See, Christ undoes all of that. He undoes the peace with the lack of peace within. He undoes the lack of peace between people, and he undoes the lack of peace with God. And we're told this throughout the New Testament. So, what did Satan tell Eve? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I'll finish with this quote from John MacArthur. He says, It was a dangerous half truth. If they ate the fruit, they would indeed know evil but not as God knows it. They would know it experientially. And we, as the human race, have known it experientially ever since. Let's pray. Our sovereign God, you save. And Father, we are grateful that Christ crushed the head of the serpent as you promised Adam and Eve, even in your grace there in the garden. And one day he will come back for us. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.